This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, good morning. You are listening to The Morning Run. It's 6 a.m. on Thursday, the 12th of May. I'm Shazana Mokhtar in studio today with Tan Chen Lee and Kusu Chuang. Guten Morgen, people. Selamat pagi. Selamat pagi. How many languages can we bring up this morning? In any case, how is everybody doing on this Thursday, also known as Friday Junior to some of us? Had a fantastic Raya, had a very nice rest, didn't go anywhere, five days of sheer bliss at home. Excellent. Wow, good yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was very busy for me, just running a lot of errands and um, well, also getting stuck in some parts of town because the traffic <laughs> was just not great. Even though, people, Even though, right? Yeah. Yeah, some parts of it, but not not severely. Yeah. So it was not too bad. I think good rest. Excellent. And well, how was your stress? My Raya was very tiring, but it was wonderful to be able to see people after two years of pandemic restrictions. You know, the past two Rayas have just been on video. So it was nice to be able to see people in person again. And I especially loved seeing how little cousins got together and and played. I do feel that Raya is special for that reason when you get to see your family together. Do you guys remember Ibrahim, Ibrahim Sani? I was talking to him a couple of weeks ago and he says, this one, bro, this one, sure, revenge Raya season one. And sure enough, it was revenge Raya, man. Pretty much. (laughs) Everybody was out and they're gallivanting around. Absolutely. Well, in any case, uh, it's going to be, we're still part of the work week and we have a lot of interesting conversations lined up for you this morning. Beginning at 7.15, we're going to discuss the ESG investment landscape in Malaysia. ESG, of course, being the acronym for Environment, Social and Governance Principles. We'll have Andrew Chan of PwC to give us his reading on how this is panning out in Malaysia. And then at 7.30, we we will be talking about the U.S. ASEAN Summit that is happening on um, May 12 to 13. As we are, we're going to talk to Thomas Daniel, Daniel of ISIS Malaysia to talk about the expectation that we will have out of this meeting. And I wonder what's going to come out of it, actually. Yep. And uh, yesterday, Bank Negara unexpectedly raised rates by 25 bips. So we'll talk to Julia Gore of UB Malaysia for the ramifications of what that means for Malaysia. Okay, we'll have all this and more today on The Morning Runs. Stay with us, BFM 89.9. That was the Foo Fighters with Big Me. Before that, you also heard Riverside by America. You are currently listening to The Morning Run. It's 6.07 a.m. I'm Shazana Mokhtar. I'm with... Kusu Chuang and Tan Chen Li. You had to think about that for a little while, didn't you? I did. I looked at you and I was like, who is this handsome fellow in front of me? It's no, Kusu that's Chuang, not what of course. <laughs> You're a terrible liar, Shaz. <laughs> in any case, let's turn our attention to the first story on our docket this morning. We are looking at this article from The Economist. And if you've read it, it kind of gives new meaning to that police song, I'll Be Watching You. Remember that one? <laughs> so this article talks about the rise in corporate surveillance surveillance accelerated by the pandemic and whether this is a good or bad thing. Yeah, and actually, actually I saw this article and I was thinking like, what? You mean a lot of companies actually use these sort of uh, so-called uh, surveillance software to spy on the employees? And it seems to be a very rampant thing. What? What do I you mean, think about this? I think companies have always watched their employees, yeah? You've got CCTV cameras in certain um, in certain venues. Uh, so there is, they do monitor their employees. But what's been new about the pandemic is they've uh, really tr- invested in remote ways of surveilling their employees. So employees that aren't in the office necessarily, they try to put in software in their computers that, will, that they'll be able to monitor while they're working from home, for example, which has been pretty interesting. We don't have that here at BF 
FM. I uh, hope. Yet. <laughs> but it has been growing in other parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, George Orwell wrote about this 60 years ago when he wrote about when he had a book titled Big Brother, right? But I was talking about this exact same phenomenon from the work from home issue with my friend from one of the big banks. He's like number two or number three there, right? And you're saying that work from home is only selectively productive if you have staff that can be on board with you, i.e. if they're not bludging, i.e. if they're not doing personal stuff during work hours. And for him, even for some of his senior managers, they were out gallivanting doing their personal stuff. And if you can't trust your staff, then if people don't do the right thing, then obviously you need to be surveyed, you know what I'm saying? I guess there's some there's some stats to back this up. There's a survey of more than a thousand firms in the US in 2021. 60% of them used monitoring software of some type because I because of that reason, I suppose, Chuang, the feeling that they weren't sure if they could trust their employees to use the time that they have outside of the office in a in a you know productive manner. And then the question comes to is it right to really be surveilling your employees to whether you know see whether they are being productive and they are really doing the working or not? Is this the right thing? to do. Well, the truth is people will have always been and always will take time off if they can and try and game the system. That's human nature for you, right? So maybe it's not so much trying to uh, orchestrate p- human behavior. It's more a case of changing the way uh, remuneration and the employee-employer structure is, is done. So that, that, that may need necessitates a, a sea change in the model. Like, for example, with certain tech companies, they pay you by hour based on your productivity, so if you finish your task, for example, with coding and program designers, they do it in three hours rather than five. They get paid for their time, and then they're done. They can go walk the dog on the beach rather than being paid for a nine-hour day every day for the you know, 365. But isn't it hard to measure? Because sometimes you can be into, you can be in the project still, but you're taking a break. Maybe you're, um, you're stuck on something, on your thoughts, and then you want to maybe take a drink and look, take a look at the scenery outside. How are you going to be measured on that then? Well, for tasks, I think, which are qualitative in nature and, and you know, that can be quantifiable, yes, for example, if you like, for example, a, a banker who has a sales target, he has a PL on his head, Right, so if he's supposed to hit a say fifty million sales a year, hits it in say June, right? I think they should be entitled to go away for the next six months. I mean, for example, right? It's a sea change in mentality, especially for Chinese employers. But why not? Why shouldn't that be the case? I guess it really involves a, a rethink on both sides, employer and employee, if they really want to genuinely navigate um, flexibility and remote working. But coming back to the question of corporate surveillance. I, I think one of the things pointed out in this article is the fact that there are laws coming into place in the US which will require companies to inform employees about any electronic monitoring of their telephone, email or internet activity. So the fact is before this, it wasn't regulated in New York. So companies could do it and they didn't really have an obligation to tell their employees that they were being watched. Now laws are coming into effect where you have to inform them. So they're not saying that surveillance is bad, but employees need to know if they're being watched, which I think yeah. is uh, is a move in the right direction. Yeah, but it's, it's, if you take this to, this to its nth degree, right, to its final outcome, the result is not pretty because you don't want to have a, a situation where it's like a police state in your, in your workplace, right? Yeah. You want to have a, a level of autonomy that you trust each other and you do the best job that you can. Very true. It does also say that uh, workers that... Uh, know they're surveilled, tend to feel more stressed as yeah. well. And it does show a lack of trust, right, in them. So again, this is this is a new fraught environment for employers and employees to navigate. You can say the same thing about countries and governments, right? For example, let's just say Malaysia, right? 
at the height of the Mysore Jatra, everybody was just checking in everywhere they went, right? But that level of surveillance and that level of accountability went only one direction. You didn't know what your politicians were doing. You didn't know where they were. They could have been in Singapore cavorting with their billionaire friends for all you know. And some of them could have had prison sentences and, and criminal charges on their head and facing court, but they were still going around. And it's one direction. And, you know, people like Noel Harari talked about this um, in, in, in infinitum. Tell us what you think. Does your company uh, in, uh, include some kind of corporate surveillance uh, system in your work? Uh, are you in favor of this? Uh, you can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or you can tweet us at BFM Radio with your thoughts. We're heading into some messages now and when we come back, we're going to look at the pros and cons of digital cash. Stay tuned, BFM 89.9. That was Feist with I Feel It All. You're listening to The Morning Run with Shazana Chuang and Chen Li. Uh, we have a message from Lily who WhatsApped in in relation to our conversation earlier on corporate surveillance. She wanted to say that the George Orwell book Chuang referred to earlier is 1984, not Big Brother. Yeah, that Lily is actually Lily Orwell, right? George's granddaughter <laughs> listening from the UK. Perhaps so. Who knows? I have no idea. But thanks, Lily, for that correction. Big Brother is a character in 1984 for sure, but the book is called 1984. Big Brother is also a TV show, uh, curiously enough, about um, about people living in a house and being watched on camera. Right. So there you go. Lots of references there. Uh, turning our attention to the next story on our docket, it may seem like the world is heading towards a future where digital cash becomes the norm, but there is this op-ed by Andrew Mukherjee of Bloomberg. He argues that it's not a clear-cut case for every country. Yeah, um, and the question is, will you adopt digital cash if it was an option to you? And my answer is, it depends. Wait, before we get into the pros and cons of it, could either of you maybe explain to me how digital cash differs from whatever e-payments that we're doing now? Because you know, e-wallets are, are pretty prevalent. Everyone's used their touch-and-go wallet or their grab pay to pay for That's food deliveries. Cash, so is that considered That's digital, digital cash? cash yeah. I don't think so. No, it is. I thought it's a bit different because CBDC or Central Bank Digital Currency is more like, um, it is like a crypto in a way, but based well, on fiat money. So yeah, there so is physical uh, base, physical money in a way, and it's not like, you know, because like cryptocurrency, there's no base unless you're a stable coin. But um, so it's a little bit different from e-payment, I feel. And I think the benefit of it is because it's, of course, digital is easier to transact and uh, especially for inter uh, or so-called cross-border transactions. So it's, it speeds up the uh, the whole transaction yeah, so time. So e-payments is the teenage version of uh, central bank digital currencies. They will yeah, eventually yeah. become digital currencies but right now they're denominated in ringgits which is what the Malaysian currency is, right? And of course now the, the whole argument is whether um, Malaysia, well, well, sovereign central banks mm. start to adopt some form of cryptocurrency whether it's Bitcoin or Ether or some other stable or cryptocurrency yeah, as their base currency. Correct, because cryptocurrency is decentralised, right? Whereas um, CBDC is centralised. Centralised, yeah. yeah. So I think that's where the difference is between the two if you were to compare with cryptocurrency. Yeah, so some countries around the world have adopted uh, digital currencies as their currencies. For example, El Salvador, I think, is yes. one of them. Georgia and Europe has, has done that as well. But uh, so, so that's something that uh, central uh, countries all around the world are grappling with, whether to adopt, to what extent should they adopt. And then, of course, people, right? But for people, 
um, the, the, the current conundrum is whether you adopt digital cash or physical cash. And we know that around the world, physical cash in terms of physical banknotes has been deteriorating rapidly. And Demokaji, the writer of this uh, column in the Bloomberg, points that out. And I think eventually it's going to be a reality, right? People will still will, will ditch physical cash in favor of physical ca- and digital cash. My concern is that you should only adopt digital cash if you can trust your government. Because once you digitize everything, everything is monitored. It's big brother. Everything is watched and surveyed and in many, many cases um, manipulated to profit from your transactions. Yeah, and so the the question here is, should our government um, uh, adopt it? And I think quite a lot of government... They mind- definitely want to adopt it. Bank of yeah, has been a digitization it. drive for years. For That's example, right. the use of physical checkbooks uh, is now v- vigorously... Um, 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 discouraged from you know from companies using them. Yeah, but if the, we were to turn our attention to wait, which what countries or in what state of a country that we sh- that they should start looking at CBDCs, uh, for example. I mean, one of the country that is going to introduce this is actually India. Um, beginning April first, they're going to be one of the largest economies to issue CBDC. Malaysia, on the contrary, we're still studying it. I think uh, our Bank Negara has been studying it for the longest time still, and there's studying it. So uh, I guess there's a lot of consideration to put into when you were to think about introducing CBDC in your country. Yeah, Narendra Modi uh, famously, I think 2016, he just overnight just um, killed off the 500 rupee, rupee and 1000 rupee note in an effort to demonetize, he called it demonetization in the economy. And there's a lot of reasons why he did it. But essentially, he wanted to move to a digital uh, currency and digital economy. But the thing is, uh, I think something like 93% of India does not have a bank account, they are unbanked in, in totality. So how can you have a digital currency when 93% of your country does not even have a bank account? I think, in curiously enough, that's one of the arguments that Andrew Mukherjee makes um, to call for digital cash um, being prioritised in countries where there is a very large population of underbanked and underserved, because he says then that is the mechanism that can be used to transfer important transactions to them, like if it's government welfare or if it's, I don't know, tax rebates or so, or, some, or something of that sort. So he, in his article, talked about the differences between Poland and Peru, where he says that in Poland's case, digital cash doesn't really need to be a priority for them because they have a very sophisticated and mature financial system. Whereas in Peru, because so many people still don't have bank accounts, perhaps a digital cash system could be of benefit there. And I suppose in India, that's what they're thinking as well. And it's going to be interesting to see how things unfold in India, because as you said, Chuang, they do have a history of experimenting with with their finances and how they, you know, how they... Well, yeah, demonetization <laughs> to come to that point. Um, anyways, tell us what you think. Do you think digital cash uh, should be introduced more rapidly in Malaysia? What's your thought of what digital cash is? You can WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. It's 6.25 a.m. We're heading into the 6.30 a.m. news bulletin and taking you to the news is Genesis with Home by the Sea, BFM 89.9. That was Pearl Jam with a Daughter. You're listening to The Morning Run on Thursday, the 12th of May. It's 6.40 a.m. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Kusu Chuang and Tan Chen Li. Now, before we take a look at global headlines, as we, as we always do at this time of day, I just, wanted to take a, I just wanted to take a look at some of the WhatsApp messages that we've received. We have one here from Ro, who says, while we're correcting Chuang, Shaz referred to the police song as <laughs> I'll Be Watching You. It's actually Every Breath You Take. I 
I stand corrected, Ro. You are so right. <laughs> Too just... early in the morning for anything pop trivia-ish, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> perhaps so, perhaps so. We also have a message here from Shamil Abdul Raza, who says that in his company, work from home or work freedom is a privilege that's given to everyone. His company is very results-oriented, but once you start giving excuses for attending meetings or missing deadlines, that privilege will be revoked. So I guess it does very good. work on an honour system, a trust system of sorts that goes both ways. That's good to know. All right. Uh, we are turning our attention now to global headlines. What's making the news around the world? Chuang, what's caught your eye this morning? Apple has finally discontinued this iPod. Oh, I was about yes. to say that, yeah. Chuang. See, I, knew I took the words right out of your mouth. Like that meatloaf song. Um, <laughs> so, of course, with the advent of the iPhone, right, when you can do everything in one phone, there's no need for two devices. But, you know, the interesting thing here is that iPod, um, new in box, new old stock, right, untouched, unvarnished, virgin-like, right, selling for as much as $47,000 on e- eBay. Wow. Can you imagine, right? So, so alternative currencies, we talked about that in, the, in just now 20 minutes ago. Um, th- this is the new norm. I mean, don't throw that stuff away because it might be worth something on eBay one day. I think I need to dig it out. I, I have an I iPod. have one, yeah. but mine is not new in box. Okay? Mine, mine is, is not either. <laughs> it's probably not functioning anymore. As mine well. is vigorously molested. <laughs> All dinged and battered up, yes. I'm sure. But the iPod was such an iconic invention. Yes. You know, it allowed you to carry music in your pocket at such ease it was it paved the way for all those numerous little thumb drive devices where you'd store music in so i it is with a bit of sadness that i see them discontinuing and then the you product. do that dial thing goes you know that oh, one yeah, yeah, yeah right yeah, 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 yeah that's yeah, been a yeah, while yeah. i haven't yeah that brings memory really for sure all right well what else has caught your eye how about you chen lee what's in front of you this morning um i actually was looking at this news yesterday because Apparently, Saudi Aramco overtook Apple as the world's most yes, valuable company. I saw that. Yeah, because of the oil prices that has been um, buoying the the crude producer. So it's interesting as well because crude producer, oil producer, uh, crude producer. Crude. Did I say crypto? <laughs> <laughs> I say crude. Three out of three. We've all made mistakes this morning. <laughs> <laughs> It's a Thursday thing, yes. Well, that's really interesting. I mean, to think of uh, how the surge in oil prices has really uh, inflated or, I guess, boosted the performance of Saudi Aramco and its value as well. A related headline to that is actually one that I saw in the Financial Times overnight. And this is coming from BlackRock. So BlackRock, as we know, has been one of those vanguards in pushing for more environmental, social and governance um, investing in its uh, in its investment, essentially. They've actually said that this year they're going to vote against climate resolutions because they feel that the environment due to energy concerns, energy security concerns, is not really ripe to push for those major overhauls of of company practices, which I thought was very interesting. They uh, were initially pushing for ESG. Now they're kind of pulling back because they think that there still needs to be investment into fossil fuels. Yeah, of course. And you, you could be, we've seen how the Ukraine crisis has basically upended all ESG aspirations. And, you know, this it's quite true. You, you know, um, obviously non-renewable sources can't supplant fossils for now because the demand is just too great. But speaking of BlackRock, um, this is purely unverified sources, right? But of course, BlackRock, they've got lots of money in AUMs and they've, apparently they, they and Citadel and other fund another asset management firm were well, one of the reasons why uh, uh, Terra, uh, UST Terra, was what well, you know the cryptocurrency created because of basically market manipulation. Do one, the founder of Terra was actually, I, I think, reportedly according to unverified sources, <laughs> duped into the scheme whereby we, we saw that 
the value of Terra just cratered by 97%. And if you were into the crypto markets in any way, shape or form, you would have been, you would have fallen, you know, victim to basically this whole collapse in crypto assets. And Bitcoin itself is below 30,000 this morning. I do think that the crypto space is a pretty ripe for a lot of news coming out of it just because of how far it's fallen from its lofty highs. Uh, all right, it's 6.45 in the morning. We're taking a quick break and we're going to come back with a look at what's making headlines in our local newspapers and portals. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. That was the Eurythmics with Thorn in My Side. I wonder who she's talking about there. You're listening to The Morning Run with Shazana Chuang and Chen Li. 6.50 in the morning on Thursday, the 12th of May. We are taking a look at what's making the headlines in our local newspapers and portals. What's, what's caught your eye, Chen Li? Do you guys realise the weather is pretty hot these days? Oh uh, Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> we live in the country, don't we? <laughs> no, I mean, extraordinary very hot yeah, than the usual yeah. the um, prickly kind of heat yeah and so according to our Met Malaysia there is a southwest monsoon that is expected to begin this Saturday and will last until mid-September and during this period there will be low air humidity and also stable atmospheric condition is what they were saying so there will be more days without rain or even low rainfall and that's why it's going to be even hotter moving into September Wow, I think we did a, something similar about the weather patterns in India and Pakistan last That's, week. I think we where um, temperatures in India and Pakistan daily basis about 50 degrees centigrade as high as 62 in certain parts of the world. The heat map showed the whole subcontinent red in colour. So we are not hitting 40 or uh, because I think India and Pakistan is up to 40 and above. Over yeah. here is going to be around maybe 32, 34. Which hot is enough. Hot la. enough, yes. So yeah, beware guys. I mean, yeah, drink this, lots of water. If yeah. this isn't evidence that climate change is happening, and if this doesn't uh, persuade policymakers to take action, then I don't really know what will. I mean, how hot does it have to get before we actually see policies on the ground to respond to this? Uh, okay, so weather, keeping an eye on that. What about you, Chuang? What's got your eye this morning? Good news. Malaysia beat Japan 3-2 in the Thomas Cup tie last night to top the group, which means they can avoid Indonesia and China in the playoff ah. stages, which is very important. Uh, Zijia, uh, Lee Zijia, yeah, he beat uh, Ken- Kento Momota, um, and Momota. he's beaten Kento to Momota a couple times so far this year, including at the All England. Um, but uh, Momota uh, fell again to Zicha, and that's fantastic news. All right. So we are our hopes are still alive in the Thomas Cup. And another um, positive news is that there's no, not I mean, we're not expecting a more queues for passport. I know a lot of people are trying to leave the country finally after two years. And we uh, apparently our immigration uh, department has 1.2 million passports in stocks, and they're going to extend their operating hours to 7 p.m. So more people will be able to have access to uh, renewing their passports. This was, this was in the headlines over the past few days, I think, yeah. especially as people uh, had to wait for really long t- uh, really long queues to get their passports, which was different from previously. Usually it used to be really quick and snappy. Yes. Um, yeah. And it's good yeah. that they're taking action to actually to uh, accommodate more people applying for passports. Yeah, did, just speaking of travel, did you guys see about how um, there was something that went viral about Malaysia Airlines? One of the aeroplanes was really hot in the cabin and the Malaysia Airlines responded. It was more than one, actually. It was three yeah. separate flights that were affected yeah. by the very hot uh, cabin temperatures. Uh, yes, you're right. Malaysia Airlines has come out to apologize over that uh, technical mistake or technical failure. Yeah, some airlines, I mean, they've been you know sidelined for so long, the airplanes. Obviously, there's going to be some issues there. But also very related because um, it's about fuel, right? And I want to talk about how RON97, RON97 is the one which is market floated based on 
in oil prices. Ron 97 is now 4 ringgit 31 per litre. Compare that to 2 ringgit and 5 cents of, of you know, fuel subsidy price of 205. So it's more than nearly twice what Ron 95 is. I, so I, if you have a Porsche or Ferrari, sorry lah. But you can't afford that anywhere <laughs> in the first place, right? I don't think I've ever seen Ron 97 hit 4 ringgit uh, in my lifetime. And, you know, yeah, they make sure how old I am. But there you go. Did, did you know what about re- real prices, real market prices for Ron 95 should run, be around about 5 or 6 ringgit? And I think in, in in I think in America they pay like nearly nine bucks, you know, uh, nine ringgit per, per gallon, which is I think more per liter. But we we don't we pay artificially low prices for petrol in this country. And that's why Singaporeans like to come over here as well to get their share and of petrol. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Other headlines that have caught my eye. I am looking at a couple of headlines related to foreign workers coming out of Malaysia. Kini. They've always had some really good reports on what the discussions on foreign labor policy is like. Uh, two stories that I see. Number one. Uh, 200 Indian workers duped by agents denied entry into Malaysia. And I was really upset reading this story because it shows that the issue of foreign labor, it involves a lot of middlemen as well. And the fact is there are a lot of people being lured to come into Malaysia under false pretenses um, by unscrupulous people who don't give them the true facts of the case. And then they're caught in the middle. Uh, they're deported back without... when. All their intention was to come here to find an honest living. So I feel like this issue really needs to be spotlighted further by the government. It's not it, it, The fact is that a lot of regulations are still not in place when it comes to foreign labor. The fact is that there's still a lot of processes that are taking, that's taking too much time. You know, it, this is a mess, I feel, it, when it comes to our foreign labor processes. Yeah, Malaysia has made the middleman a science. They've perfected into a science. And of course, the only beneficiary is them and their friends, right? Uh, we, we know that we know a lot of, we need a lot of foreign labor in this country on the construction sites and the Palm Oil Estates and even our households. But I think even for households, you're paying something like 20,000 ringgit for agency fees for a maid. That's ridiculous. Well, they were saying they're supposed to be capped to 15,000. But it's I think in money. reality, it's more than 15,000 if you really were to get one. And the, the, well, the maid herself, no, neither the maid nor her family. Family, get any of their money, it just goes to the middleman. It's 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 illegal, it's abhorrent, it should be stopped. But it continues, untrammeled in Malaysia. And speaking of domestic workers, another story that I saw in Malaysia Kini, Malaysian labor law continues to discriminate against domestic workers because under the Employment Act, domestic workers aren't entitled to the rights that other employees are, which to me is a complete travesty. Uh, things with the system that really need to be looked into. 6.55 in the morning, we're heading into the 7am news bulletin and then after that we'll take a look at how global markets closed overnight but taking you to the news is the jackson five with enjoy yourself bfm 89.9 thank you for listening to this podcast to find more great interviews go to bfm.my or find us on itunes bfm 89.9 the business station